Welcome to Salcedo Paranormal. It is Sunday, February 5th, 2023. And today I'm reviewing six stories from H.P. Lovecraft, The Complete Fiction. As always, you can find all the shows, along with links to social media and other ways to contact me, at the podcast page. And that is salcedoparanormal.podbean.com. That's S-A-L-S-I-D-O paranormal.podbean.com. Always happy to hear from you all, whether you have comments or questions or topic suggestions or stories of paranormal experiences. Whether they're your own or from others that you trust, happy to either read them or have you join me on the show to talk about them. So, um, doing this show to, um, somewhat to make, somewhat make up for missing two shows this week. And, uh, so that's why I'm doing this extra Lovecraft show. And, um, looks like, uh, maybe two more episodes of this and then I'll be done reviewing the stories. And then I'll do one more episode after that, just about my thoughts on all of these stories together. And on Lovecraft himself. And uh, then I'll move on, move on to something else. So um, that's the plan right now. Of course, um, the next one of these will be on Thursday. And then um, two weeks from that point after that. Because uh, on the morning of the 16th, the night of the 15th, um, I'll be doing a roundtable episode. There will not be a stream that day, but there will be an episode. That will come out um, and on the morning of the 16th. And uh, so, yeah, that's the plan for the next um, couple of weeks here. Just uh, the usual true paranormal stories from the web and paranormal news shows. And then uh, some more Lovecraft and then that roundtable show. So um, thank you all for being here and listening, whether you're listening live or you listen to the podcast or YouTube feeds. And uh, with that, I think I can get to the stories here. So this first one is a little bit longer. It has chapters. Um, I don't think the summary I have here divides it up in chapters, but basically does uh, talk about the story. So um, the story starts off, the narrator is uh, Daniel Upton. Uh, explains that he has killed his best friend. Uh, Edward Derby, but that he hopes that um, people will understand why he did it and that he is not a murderer. So, already, um, of course, Lovecraft horror story here. Um, he starts out by talking about Derby's life and career. Um, Derby had been interested in the occult, the paranormal. Uh, basically from young age, which, uh, is how the two got connected as friends. And, um, they would discuss the, the paranormal and the occult whenever, uh, whenever they could. So apparently one important thing, um, factor in the story is that at one, or whenever, um, Derby would come by to see Upton, he would use a, a particular pattern of knocking on um, the door, it'd be, um, three, three strokes, a pause, and then two additional strokes on the knocker. So basically five, three and two. 
Um, and so it says that Upton always was able to know it was Derby because of this. So um, let's see here. At one point, uh, Derby went to, um, let's see here. Oh, I'm sorry. So eventually Derby's mother passed. And it took him a long time to recover from that, obviously. Um, and then uh, he, um, he's at, around the same time he was going to college. And around this time, he met someone at, um, at this college. Uh, I'm not sure how you say the name here. Azeneth? Uh, let me see here. Wait. Azeneth Wait. Uh, who was a, um, a classmate. And, of course, the college they went to was Miskatonic University. Some, a place that pops up a lot in Lovecraft stories. So the, this couple was soon, um, soon got married. Uh, and of course the part of what drew them together was again, the occult. So the, um, excuse me, the, uh, the couple moves into the house, uh, where his, um, let me see here. Okay. So it looks like, um, at one point Derby moves into a, a house, um, and not long after being in college. Um, but at one point, there was, uh, people started to notice that, um, Derby started to change. Sometimes he would, uh, drive off by himself, even though he'd never been taught to drive. Um, and then once in a while, he'll be driven back by a chauffeur or mechanic. Um, so basically odd behaviors. And, uh, Derby tells Upton that, uh, um, Azeneth is, is strange, um, tell stories about her. And, um, at one point he shows up at Upton's house in a panic and says he will never let her do a certain thing to him again, but he doesn't say what it is. Um, but Derby does try to hint at what he believes happens, which is that, um, as in this father may not actually be dead. And so, um, but then he eventually, before he can go on, he stops as if, um, he can't go on any further about this. So later on, um, Upton is called to pick up Derby who has been found in another town. Um, basically ramble, rambling incoherently. It says here, on the trip back, Derby talks about Azeneth using his body, basically. Um, and is, he's pretty sure that it's actually not even, not even her, but it's actually her father in her, um, in her own body. He thinks that the, that the father actually switched consciousness with his daughter. So... Um, so he tells Upton that uh, Azeneth wrote down a note that was just like her father's manuscripts, um, basically just identical to that to his writing. And um, after finishing this, what he's telling Upton, he has a 
uh, seizure, but then rapidly changes personality and then tells Upton to ignore what uh, what he Derby had just said. And he um, Upton notices that Derby's eye colors or eyes eye colors, I think it's colors, but maybe not. Just the look in the eyes uh, has changed. So um, getting there here. I know this is a bit long, but um, so there's some time that passes, a few months, and Derby shows up at Upton's door and says he's found a way to keep uh, Asnith away and to stop her from using his body. Um, and basically that implies some kind of spell or ritual. And um, Derby eventually does move back to his own home. And, uh, but he still seems reluctant to leave the house where he and his wife at that point are, st- are living at. Um, so and then, of, of course, Derby goes away and then comes back again at one point uh, and starts talking about the wife and father-in-law and how um, they're basically, Derby can still feel the um, this presence, whether it's the daughter or the father, uh, trying to get get a hold of his mind. So, um, Upton is convinced now that Derby is basically needs uh, help and uh, of a psychological or psychiatric kind here, and has him taken uh, has Derby taken to an to a uh, sanitarium in Arkham. And uh, so at one point, Derby, Derby's um, personality changes again there and appears that um, he's safe to be let go. But Upton can see that it's not actually Derby. It's not actually his regular personality, but it's the one that took over while they were both in the car a while back. So, um, so at one point, after hearing this, uh, I have to get back home. Upton gets a, a knock at his door, um, and it's the same knock as Derby would use. And so he gets to the door, and um, opens it, and finds this almost a um, uh, shell of a, of a of a person. This says it's um basically short uh humped messenger uh that is wearing Derby's clothes and he's carrying a letter from Derby. So Upton um reads the letter and finds out that's from Derby and um turns out Derby has killed Azneth and buried her body in their cellar. Um, but basically, uh, he figures out it was too late and that her and or her father's spirit are, um, still around. They've detached from that body and, um, they've basically, uh, taken control of Derby while in the sanitarium 
which means that the thing on the doorstep is actually Derby inhabiting <laughs> Azanus' body, which is passed away, which is dead. And um, that in the, this letter from Derby, he asks Upton to go to the sanitarium to kill Derby, who has now been permanently possessed by Ephraim, which is the father of Azanus. And uh, so Upton does this, and of course he is captured um, and is also afraid of losing or having his soul transferred as well. So that's where the story ends. Um, quite the, uh, the story, considering how far, far back this was, back in the early early um 20th century there around there and um so yeah really really well written story and just uh great turns in it and everything as well so definitely recommend reading that one as well and uh go from there so let me see here just checking out everything everything looks okay so um that's the first story and that's going to be the longest story that I talk about tonight. And uh so yeah, that's basically the first one. I'll get to the next one in just one minute. Just gonna get some water. Alright. So uh the next story is called <clears throat> the tomb um so this this story talks about uh Jervis Dudley who is a um basically obsessed with daydreaming uh, apparently while he's still a child he finds a padlocked entrance to a mausoleum uh, that belongs to the Hyde family, H-Y-D-E. And it says that um, the, there's a mansion nearby, there was a mansion nearby that had burned down many years before that. Um, Jervis tried to break the padlock, but was a- unable to do that. And so he, um, what he started doing after this was he started sleeping outside of the tomb. So um, eventually, of course, he does read a lot of um, ancient writings and everything. And uh, so Dudley um, decides to wait, that's Jarvis, until um, he is able to open the tomb. So one night, several years later, Jarvis falls asleep outside this tomb. And he wakes up suddenly in late afternoon. And uh, as he wakes up, he he um, he's he's sure he's seen a light that has been extinguished inside the tomb. So he then goes to his home, and he goes to the attic, and um, is somehow just compelled to do this. And he finds this um, this rot, this basically falling, this chest that is falling apart. 
and he finds a key inside it. And he knows at this point that this key will let him get into that tomb. So it works. And Jarvis discovers an empty coffin with, with his name inside of it. Um, he starts to sleep in the empty coffin each night. Um, but then people outside who are starting to watch him now still see him uh, sleeping outside the tomb. So um, Jarvis also starts having this fear of thunder and fire, which is, of course, is what burnt down the the mansion belonging to the family that the tomb belongs to. Um, and so at one point, Jarvis goes out to the tomb at night, even though there's a storm going on around him, and he sees the Jar the um the Hyde Mansion returned basically to the way it was, and there's a party in there, so he ends up joining them, and um he starts <clears throat> excuse me he um he joins this party <clears throat> and um during the party though lightning strikes the mansion and of course it burns down and Jarvis loses consciousness and um he believes that as he does this he's being burnt um to death by the lightning and the fire but when he wakes up he finds himself uh being held by two men with his father nearby and there's a small antique box discovered in the um, in this tomb, which has also been destroyed, basically, by the storm. And there is um, this box inside this tomb that, inside that box, there's a porcelain, porcelain miniature of a, of a man who appears to look just like um, Jarvis. And, of course, the name inside, um, or the initials inside this, this um, or on this miniature are J.H., so Jarvis Hyde. And it seems like, seems that um, Jarvis was the reincarnation of Jarvis Hyde, who came back to um, be laid to rest with his ancestors in the family tomb, as he was not when his ashes blew away in all directions after at the fire. So um, Jarvis starts telling people that he has been sleeping inside the tomb, uh, even though um, people have been watching him, and his father tells him that they've always seen him sleeping outside the tomb. Um, so Jarvis is, of course taken to an asylum um, and uh, because everyone assumes that his story is all just made up um, but at one point one of the family servants that is still um, faithful to Jarvis um, basically he breaks the uh, let's see here I lost my spot so Jarvis um, asks the servant, Hiram, to uh, break into the tomb and uh, 
and then finds that there is indeed a coffin with a plate with Jarvis with that name on it. And then the one that's alive um, states that he has been promised uh, to be buried in that coffin when he dies. So, um, of course, the one the one way you could look at this is just someone's imagination. But then, how do you, how do you explain the key? Of course, after he wakes up, he can't find the key. Um, so it's a, it's a story about questioning really whether what you want to believe. If um, he did really go through all that, I almost wonder too if it's like a time, some kind of a, I don't know alternate parallel universe sort of thing or um hard to say with that like i said the easy answer is just that he was imagining everything but uh i don't think everything is always that easy so um that's the end of that story and uh move on to the next one here in a minute so let's see here all right um this next one is called the trans the transition of Juan Romero, and um, so this story um, it talks about a mine that uncovers a very deep, uh, basically a very deep pit, and um, the uh, the night after this pit is discovered, the narrator uh, and one of the Mines workers, who is that that his name is Juan Romero, um, decide to go into the the mine at night, and they're basically being drawn against their will by a mysterious um, sound coming from the ground. Uh, Romero goes gets to the abyss first, and falls into it. And um, the narrator, who's unnamed, looks over the edge and sees something. But, of course, and as happens in a lot of these stories, will not say what he saw and loses consciousness. Um, the next morning, the narrator and Romero are both found in their bunks. Um, but uh, And the, the other workers there say that Neither of them ever actually left the the um their cabin that night. Um and uh the chasm also is the pit has also vanished as well. But the thing is, Romero is still dead. He's found in his bed, the same as the narrator is the um the next day. So that's a short one, but uh and it's a good one and an interesting one in a way. Makes you wonder. Were they were these two invisible when they went out somehow? Um, we know that the pit was discovered by the people at the mine, um, but then there's no talk about what they thought. Of course, after it was gone. So um, neat story as well. Just another good short one there. Let's see here. Um, looking at this, I have three more to go. Um, thank you all again for listening to all this. Uh, doing these reviews is always fun, but somewhat hard in a way. 
um, to, to cover all these stories and get all the details that I can from them. Um, so the next story is called The Tree. And um, this, is a, this is probably one of my recent favorites, in a way. Um, so this story talks about uh, a mountain in Arcadia where there is this olive grove that is growing around a uh, marble tomb and the ruin of an old house, old villa. And so this one gigantic tree that's there, which is surrounding this uh, tomb, um, has taken the shape of a uh, distorted human. Um, but it's, of course, it's a giant tree. And the roots of the tree have gone into the blocks of the tomb. And so the narrator, uh, who I don't believe was named in this one either, explains that the, um, the beekeeper that lived next door to him told him a story about the tree. So at one point in the past, there were these two uh, famous sculptors, Kalos and Musides. I'm not sure if I'm saying this right. Uh, we'll just call them K and M. <laughs> so K and M lived in this uh, in this villa, which was um, huge and basically very fancy. And they were both um, said to be equally as good at what they did. They basically, there was not one of them that was better than the other. And so they were devoted friends, but different in their personalities. Uh, M enjoyed being out with friends at night, basically going to parties and everything, while K preferred the quiet of the olive grove that, that um, is where he apparently got his inspiration for what he would, would, cut, would sculpt. So one day, um, people from... Uh, basically emissaries from a uh, someone known as the tyrant of Syracuse came by to ask the sculptors to create a statue of um, this uh, I'm not sure you say this T-Y-C-H-E so I'm guessing it's a deity who is um, basically the translation of the name is fortune and fate um, and the statue is is um, says it must be of great size and cutting marksmanship, uh, since it's supposed to be a, um, a national treasure once it is done. So um, it says that the most beautiful statue will be raised in the tyrant city. So K and M both accept the commission. Um, and secretly, the tyrant expects them not to um, basically, uh, sorry, I messed up there. The tyrant figures that this will get actually get the two friends to compete. Um, and, uh, and but also uh, cooperate. So, uh, which will basically end up making a statue, whether one, whether from one or the other. That will be amazing. So both get started on this. Emma is still social and active out in the parties and everything. 
but everyone notices a change in his personality. He is he looks like he's sad. And apparently it's because Kay is ill. And um so Kay still um is they're both still working on their own statues. Kay still accepts visitors. Um but uh and the this visitors always notice that uh, let me see here. Did I get that right? Okay, yeah. So Kay, um, even though Kay is sick, he seems um, serene and is not does not seem to be worried about the about being sick. And no doctors are able to help um, make him better. So eventually, Kay um, is about to die, and, and M is there and weaves and promises to carve uh, a marble tomb, basically a coffin, for Kay. And Kay asks that twigs from um, certain olive trees in the grove be buried near his head. So, soon after this, um, Kay dies. And M does design this tomb and does include those twigs that were asked that uh, M asked for. Wait, no, I'm sorry. M builds the tomb. Ah, sorry about that. And um and so K is buried with those twigs near his head the way he wanted. And after this burial, um that's when this this uh, large tree starts to grow right at the head of the of this uh this tomb. So three years later, M's work on the statue is complete. The tyrant's agents show up again and they then head to town to stay the night. Um but that evening there is this windstorm that uh comes down the mountain and the next morning when the tyrant's uh people show back show up at the at the villa again they find it's destroyed um, by this giant tree branch that has um, also crushed M's statue, and uh, M himself is nowhere to be found. And the end of the story says that um, the uh, let's see here. It says that there's this this. Um, Phrase, of course, that this other narrator uses, which is says fate will find a way. So the idea is that somehow K, um, for some reason, had the uh, the statue destroyed, and uh, along with the house. So um, really odd there, though, in a way, because you wonder why exactly, but. Um, Still, it's it's a the idea of a person somehow merging with the ground and then a tree. That's not too uncommon, but it's also pretty um, amazing that Lovecraft had this idea as far back as he did, in a way. So let me see here. Um, the next story here is called the Unnameable. And um, so this one is um, features 
a man named Carter, who is a weird fictional writer, who may also be Randolph Carter, who is in many of Lovecraft's stories. Um, so he meets with a close friend, uh, Joel Manton, in a cemetery near an old um, abandoned house on Meadow Hill in the town of Arkham, Massachusetts, which is a, a common town in a lot of uh, in some of the Lovecraft stories. And the two friends sit upon this weathered tomb, and Carter tells Manton a story about an undescribable entity that allegedly haunts the house and surrounding area. And he says that because such um, a creature can't be perceived by the five sentence, their senses, a uh, sentence, there we go. Excuse me, senses, I can talk. Um, it becomes impossible, it says, to, uh, to describe this creature. And so that's why it is given the name in the story, the unnameable. So um, the, uh, the, the friend, Montan, believes that it's not real. And of course, this presence, just after this, shows up and attacks Carter and Matten. And both men survive, but they wake up in the hospital. And they've been, uh, they suffer from various lacerations and including scarring from a, few, a huge horn-shaped object and bruises in the shape of hoof prints on their backs. And um, so Manton describes this creature that Carter didn't see and says it was everywhere. And it was like a slime, a vapor. Uh, it had shapes, but a thousand shapes. And so basically, shape-changing. And um, so, yeah, it was a, it's just a story that um, about this creature that Carter tells, thinking it must be real somehow. And man doesn't believe it. And, um, and then, of course, and then they're both attacked by this creature, this unnameable. So, um, another short one there. Um, one last story to talk about here today, and that is called The White Ship. So, um, the story is, uh, basically has this, um, this character, Basil Elton, um, has this, um, this daydream or fantasy where a bearded man in robes is piloting a, a mystical ship which appears when the moon is full and Elton goes to the water near the um the moon the lighthouse and somehow joins the man on the ship and um they go and explore these islands that um Elton doesn't believe actually exist in the real world, regular world. Um, so, and this appears to be part of this dream realm. And um, so it's basically this journey of, of this, this um, real person and then this partially imaginary person on this ship. 
and um, they uh, they go they go across this ocean, and um, just looking here for the end. So the um, this journey goes on for a while, and uh, they um, they learn of other places where they can go, and Elton urges um, the the captain basically to take them there to these places, and they follow um, or they go on this journey after um, basically they they want to head to this other place, but the ship eventually finds itself at the edge of the world, which is something that happens in another one, one of Lovecraft stories as well. Um, there's an actual drop-off in this dream realm. Um, but uh, in this world, which may be that realm in a way, um, the ship goes over this edge, and um, basically it falls. And Elton wakes up after this and finds himself on the the rocks on the shore next to his lighthouse and um so but he still has all these memories of what happened and um he as he's waking up and he gets up he sees a um shipwreck that is caused by the light in the house having gone out for the first time. And um, he later finds a bird and a spur of and a spur of pure pure white, which is also something that they were that was seen on this, this voyage um, in the wreckage of the ship. And of course he never sees that that white ship again in any of his uh, his dreams. So um but uh, yeah, it's a short story, but it's very well written. A lot better than me trying to describe it there. Um, but uh, that's all the stories I had for today. And like I said, there's another, I think, six or eight stories. So I'll get through the rest of them in two more of these episodes. Um, and then I'll have one more where I talk about Lovecraft himself. And then we'll move on to something else. So um, thank you all for listening. And for staying with me for over half an hour. Um, and I'll be back tomorrow with Paranormal News on the next episode of South Pseudo Paranormal. Take care, everyone.